again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Paul calls the trials of our life a light and momentary affliction. If you wonder how hard Paul's life really was, his trials included beatings, lashings, stoning, three shipwrecks, hard labor, hunger, thirst, and exposure. And yet he still saw it all as light and momentary. How is that possible? Staff member Jeff Norris continues his series, The Pattern of the Gospel, with this message entitled Gospel Hope, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 5. Thank you for joining us today. I love history. Um, in fact, in college, every time I had the opportunity to take an elective, I had buddies who were taking basketball and golf and things to just get an easy A. And I was, uh, in my weirdness, I always took a history class. So many that, in fact, my last semester, my advisor says, you know what, if you stick around for another semester, you're only six hours away from a history minor. And I said, "Uh, that's okay. No offense to history majors, but I have no idea what you do with that if you even get the minor. But, um, But I was there. I was so close because I love history, love history. More specifically, I love American history, and even more specifically, I love Civil War history. And uh, I love visiting the battlefields. I haven't gotten to go to that many, but I've gotten to go to some over my, uh, my lifetime. And the, the, the irony of it is, the humor of it is, is that um, the amazing, incredible wife that God gave me, Rachel, she does not share this passion. <laughs> and we will go to these battlefields, and she will be about you know, maybe an hour in, and she's going, do we have to stop at every plaque? Do we have to listen to every audio? And I'm thinking, sweetie, you better buckle up. We're here for about another four or five hours. Yes, this is what's... So we don't share that passion. We share a lot of the same uh, desires and passions, but not that one. A few years ago, three or four years ago, I I got the privilege to go to Gettysburg. And I went with a group of men, and we did this, this retreat, this conference called If Properly Led. It's led by a friend of mine named Jay Lorenzen, and and uh, he does an unreal job. And, and what we did is we got away for, I don't remember, four or five days. But what we did is the battle happened over a three-day period. It was July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War. We've, we know that this, this battle, if you've studied history at all, American history, you know how significant it was, how significant it was in turning the tide of the war. Um, we're there, and we, what we would do is we would each day, it was a three-day battle, so for three days we would walk through the events of the day. We'd walk the battlefield, and even some of our time we were on horseback, just riding across these battlefields and learning about what happened at every step along the way, and it was fascinating. You know, and, and here's the point of what we were doing. We were learning all about battlefield leadership. What decisions did they make? What decisions did they, did they not make? What foresight did they have? What did they understand about the land and the lay of the land and the importance of the high ground and strategy and all these things? And so we would learn about these things and then we'd come in at night and they would feed us like royalty. And we'd eat around this buffet and we would talk about and Jay, the leader, would lead us through connecting the dots between battlefield leadership and spiritual leadership. And it was awesome. And I would love to go back. If you want to go back, come talk to me. We'll get a group together. We'll go back. It's, it's really fun. Here's why I bring this up. On the third day of battle, July 4th, ironically enough, here we are on July 4th, our Independence Day, and it's 87 years after celebrating our independence and gaining our independence, and we're fighting amongst each other. Shows you how quick we'll mess things up. But here we are on July 4th, 1863, and we're on the third day of battle, and both sides are exhausted, completely exhausted. But the Confederate side was convinced of something. 
They were absolutely convinced because the momentum that they had been building in the northern campaign in in the months previous, they were convinced that if they could take Gettysburg, if they could win that battle, that they could win the whole war, that it would open up for them a straight shot into Washington and to put an end to the whole thing. They had just won a huge win a month before in Chancellorsville, and they thought, man, if we can get through Gettysburg, we can win this thing. And so because of that belief, it motivated the southern troops, the Confederate Army, to do something that we would look at today and go, man, what were they thinking? That is crazy. And there were a lot of factors. There's actually a lot of dispute among historians as to what the factors were that actually led General Lee and the other generals to do what they did on this third day. But nevertheless, what ended up happening is that these men, these Confederate soldiers, began to form lines on one side of this battlefield and across this farmland, a little over a mile away, on the high ground called Cemetery Ridge, were the Union troops entrenched, and they had the advantage. And the Confederate soldiers began to form these lines, and they began to move forward and march towards these troops. And it wasn't long before they were into their march, commonly, uh, famously known as Pickett's Charge, that bullets began to whiz all around them and men began to drop everywhere, mostly teenagers who were in this battle. And artillery shells were exploding all around them and they didn't stop. They kept going. And I don't know about you, but I go, why would you keep going? I mean, you're walking into death. I would say, you know what, let's pull back. Let's fight another day. Here's why. Here's why they kept pushing forward. A couple months later, it started circulating that there was a battle cry that day that motivated these men. Here was the battle cry. Home, boys, home, is what the generals would yell. The colonels and lieutenants, they would all yell this same phrase. Home, boys, home is just over that hill. Home, boys, home, keep going, keep pressing, don't give up. Home is just over that hill. And so what you had with these young soldiers is that you had this reality that was going on around them, and it was not good. It was grim at best. Men dying all around those who happened to survive, but they kept pressing forward in the face of death. Why? Because their eyes were fixed on the prize before them, on what was coming, on home. And they believe, man, if I can just get there, this whole thing will be over. Their fixation on the prize to come produced within them the ability to persevere now in the gravest of circumstances. It's similar to the Christian life. We're in a battle every single day. We're battling against the flesh. We're battling against the enemy and all of his schemes to take us down. And we have this great hope before us, this home before us, this glory to come before us. But our struggle is, my struggle and your struggle, is that we really, really have a hard time focusing on that because we get so consumed with all of this, everything around us. We look at the bullets that are whizzing by and all the struggles and sufferings and afflictions and things that are going on in this fallen world and we lose sight of the glory to come and as a result, we lose heart. Where we're headed this morning is a text that tells us not to lose heart and it's all wrapped around this understanding of the reason we don't lose heart is because of where we're looking and what's to come. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 4. 
continuing in the second week of a three-week series called The Pattern of the Gospel. Let me remind you, if you have your bulletin, I want you to pull out the points to remember, this insert in there, and whether you take notes or not, I want you to pull it out anyway, and I want to remind you of what we're walking through. I told you last week that at the beginning of each week, these five C's are going to be printed at the top of your notes, and we're going to get through, over the course of these three weeks, we're going to get through these five C's and give you little thoughts around each one. So last week, give it a little recap. Last week where we were is we talked about that there's a vision that the gospel gives, the ability to see things that we didn't see before, to open our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so that correlates with that first C, captivated, that we would be a people who are becoming more captivated by the immeasurable worth of Jesus. And we talked about that there's also a death that the gospel brings. And we have to die to self. We see the glory of Jesus and we're captivated, but we understand that in his glory, there's things that he's calling us to die to. Sin habits and uh, idols and things that we have that we need to die to. So that correlates with the second one, that we're becoming a people who are more convinced that dying to self is the only appropriate response to the worth of Jesus. This week, where we're focused is on that third C. And it's all around this idea, this understanding that the gospel gives us, promises a hope. So this week is the hope the gospel promises. And it correlates with that third C, that we would become, that we'd be a people who are becoming more concerned about eternity and the glory that is to come. Now let me be clear about a couple of things. The first one is this, when we talk about hope, please understand we're not talking about hope in the way that we commonly use it in our English vernacular, where we talk about, you know, I really hope my team wins. Or I really, I really hope I can pass this test. Right? It's not that kind of hope. It's not this wishful thinking, wish upon a star, maybe this will happen, hope. What Christian hope is, is Christian hope is a fixed, secure, will happen hope. It's a hope that brings life because it's based not on our ability to get there, but based on Jesus' ability to bring us there. It's his finished work. It's the reality that he's done the work for us and my faith is in him, my hope is in him. And so therefore, this hope that is before me is not a hope that that is I hope this happens, but it's a I can't wait for this to happen because it's going to happen kind of hope. Let me be clear briefly about one other thing. And last week I went into much more detail about this. And so I would encourage you that if you missed last week, to go back to the podcast, if for nothing else, and to hear a more thorough explanation of the gospel. And, and here's what I want to be careful of. And I mentioned this last week, so just bear with me if you were here. I just want to be adamant about something, and that is that it has become a little bit cliche and, and overused the, the, in our churches today, the, the expression, the gospel. We say the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is a biblical word, and it's the center of our faith. But what happens Many times is that we say those two words, the gospel, but we don't explain what we mean by it. And so very briefly, let me just give you in a nutshell what the gospel is. I don't want want anyone walking out of here going, okay, I don't don't really understand what he means by the gospel. Here's what it means. The gospel means that you and I are woeful sinners, that because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God because he's holy and just and he has to deal with sin in a just way. And so he has to punish sin. And so we deserve the wrath of God. But then thirdly, there's nothing we can do about it. We cannot get out from under the wrath of God. We can't be good enough. We can't be moral enough. We can't attend church enough. We can't give enough towards certain endeavors to ever get out from the under, underneath the wrath of God. And so there is no hope apart from God doing the work for us. 
And so what we have in the gospel is this amazing, overwhelming truth that Jesus came and did for us what we couldn't do, namely three things. He was perfect in our place. He took God's wrath in our place. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death for us in our place so that when our faith is in him and his finished work for us, his perfect and finished work for us, God looks upon us, those who have trusted in Christ, and he says, you are righteous, not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness in you. And I adore you and I love you and come into my presence for all of eternity. This is the gospel. So this, ser- this uh, series is all about what does the gospel do to us and what does the gospel do through us? And so today we're going to look at this idea of one of the things that it does is it gives us great, great hope. So turn again, you, you, hopefully you're already there, 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to pick up in verse 16. It says this, So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, or maybe your translation says temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. There's that word again. We'll talk about that in a minute. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us, prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. This is the holy and errant word of God. Let me pray for us as we enter into it. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that it does shape us and mold us and make us more and more into your image. It convicts us of sin and it helps us see who you are and who we are. So Father, I pray that you would open our eyes all the more this morning to the power of your word and would you do your work through it. Holy Spirit, would you come and use me as your vessel and would you work in all of our hearts for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three things I want you to get this morning out of the text. The first one is this. It comes to us from verse 16. I want us to think about there's a hope that comes around God's sanctifying work. So it's the hope of God's sanctifying work. Look at verse 16. It's just one verse, and it's probably easy to read through this and maybe miss exactly what's being said. It says this. I'll read it again. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What this is saying is this, it's saying have hope, Christian, believer in Christ, who have, those of you who have trusted Jesus, have hope, be encouraged. Why? Because God is doing a work. Now, I don't have to convince you, I don't have to persuade you that your outer self is wasting away. When I look in the mirror, I'm 36 and I'm already depressed. Why is this turning gray? Why is this getting flabby even though I'm working out? What's going on? There's just, it's just not working like it used to. Those of you who are into CrossFit are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. What is, what is that? But no, we, the outer self is wasting away. We, we are, 
we don't have to be convinced of that. We see the effects of, of sin and death on us and around us and in us and all, all around the world around us. And, and so we don't need to be convinced of that. But I think something we do need to be convinced about as followers of Jesus, that God is doing a work in us consistently and faithfully. What, what, struggle, what struggle I have sometimes is that I can become so consumed with the outer self and I see what's happening not only to my body and the way that it's dying, but also with the world around me and the way that sin has marred this world around us and, and how it's dying around us. And I can be discouraged. As, as those realities press in on me, I can begin to think, is God doing something in me? Because I, it's hard to see that he's doing something around me sometimes. And we begin to condemn ourselves. We begin to believe lies from the enemy. And we go, man, God, I should be such a better father. I should be such a better husband. I, I should be such a better friend. I should love, it's Valentine's Day. I should love people better. I should love my wife better, my husband better. And so we condemn ourselves. And we, we don't really believe sometimes as we look inwardly and as we get overwhelmed with our sin. We, we sometimes don't believe and have hope that God is doing a sanctifying work. He is at work. And I, I think what Paul would be saying to us this morning in this very simple little verse is he would say, Christian, have hope. Be encouraged. Even when you can't see it, even when you don't fully understand all that God is doing behind the scenes and you're overwhelmed by the, the outer self that's, being, uh, that's wasting away, have hope. He is faithful. He is good. And he is doing a work in you and he's making you more like Jesus. Listen to Philippians 1.6. It says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that he who began a good work in you might bring it to completion based on your behavior, based on your ability to get it together and keep it together. But it's his work. He's faithful to bring us through to the end, to to complete what he begins. And certainly with our sin and our choices, we can thwart that, but we can't ultimately thwart it. We, we can slow down the process maybe with our sin, but, but ultimately God is going to win the day and he is doing a work in you. And it's not a week by week work. It's not a month by month work. It is a day by day inward renewing that's happening in the life of the, of the believer. Be encouraged. Each, under each point that I've given you, if you like to fill in blanks like I do, there's a second little thing I've given you there. And it's simply this. This is a call for us to embrace a renewed heart. To just embrace the reality that God is renewing us. He's sanctifying us. Sanctification is the biblical term that just means being made holy, being set apart. So practically speaking, it's this process that God is taking us through in our life to make us more and more like him, like Jesus. I want to spend more time there, but there's so much to talk about in this text. I want to spend more time in our next point. But just be encouraged by that, that Jesus is doing a work in you faithfully. Second thing I want you to get is this, the hope of the glory to come. I want to talk about this hope of the glory to come. Look at verse 17. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the first point, we said, look, have hope. God is at work. He's doing an inner work in you. But in the second point, the same message is true. Have hope. But why? Because not only is he doing an inner work in you now, there is a redemption coming, a full redemption coming of where he will even redeem the outer. That's wasting away now. That will even be renewed. It's called glorification. 
I didn't get for many years in my Christian life, really not until a few years ago, until I got my hands on The Answer by Randy Pope. Randy's not here, and I'm just sucking up to him. But um, Randy, Randy's book, The Answer, it really did change my life in so many ways. And, and uh, shameless plug, if you've never read it, it's in the library, get on your way out. But in this book, he helped me connect something that I'd never connect before, even as a longtime believer, and that's this. Our lives, both now and for eternity, are all, it's really wrapped around and centered around this idea of glory. I never got that. I never saw that. Let me explain. He gives five points in his book that I want to walk through uh, real quickly with us. He says this, and this is walking through the story of creation and, and what happened to us and why we are the way that we are now and then what's to come. He says this, he says, he says, we are designed with glory. If you go back to the very beginning, you go back to the creation account in Genesis and you see the story of when God created Adam and Eve and man and woman, he created them in glory, he created them in his image, but there was no sin in the world. And so there was this relationship that existed between God and his creation, between Adam and Eve, that was simply put glorious. I think Adam and Eve looked a little bit like you and I do today, but you've got to remember, we, in the way that we exist now, we are tainted by sin and marred by sin in the existence that we're in now. I think they looked a, a pretty significant bit different. I think there was, a, there was a glory about them. They weren't God, but they had the glory of God in their existence, and it was awesome. But then you get to... Genesis 3, you get to the fall where sin comes in the world, and this is what Randy says, this is our fall from glory. And when sin came into the world, we didn't just lose some of our glory, we lost all of our glory. We lost it all. And so as a result of that, here's what happens to us. We end up spending the rest of our lives searching for glory. That's the third thing, the search for glory. You talk to anybody, whether they believe in Jesus or not, we all have this innate sense about us of longing for purpose and value and significance in this world. And we don't know how to frame it in the right wording, but the right wording is we're longing for glory. Something that deep inside, even though we don't know how to say it or express it, but deep in our subconscious, down inside of us, we know that we've lost something. And so we'll search for it in anything and everything. We'll search for it in job success or in family and kids. Or we'll look for it in, in all kinds of things that attach our re- reputation to it. And anything that we can get a sense of worth and purpose and life from. And we, we really, deep down, we're saying, I need glory. I'm looking for glory. I, I just There's something out there, and we search for it. Now, for the Christian... The fourth thing that Randy says is that there's been a discovery of glory. This is what we talked about last week, that God has to remove the veil for us to see and experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And when we see and behold that glory, we go, that's it. That's the glory I've been looking for. And we suddenly realize this, this glory is not about me. It's not an inward glory. It's not something that I can manifest or muster up. It's a, it's a God glory. It's a God-centered glory. And when we wrap ourselves in his glory, then we begin to radiate and experience this glory to the world around us. And we go, yes, this is what I was made for. We discover glory. But we're caught in this tension We've discovered glory, we've met Jesus, we know glory, but yet we're still here. We still exist where sin is present. We still have our flesh about us, we still have our sin, sin nature about us, and so we struggle. And so we've tasted glory, but we sense that there's even a greater glory to come. And that's the fifth and final thing that Randy says. He says, 
that there's a time coming where we will be full of glory. When we are with him in heaven, we will receive the full weight of glory we were made for, even more so than what Adam and Eve even had. And it's going to be amazing. There's a glory that is coming, Christian, that will absolutely blow your mind. This outer self that's wasting away, there's going to be this glory that happens at the return of Christ where we're, we are re- reunited with our bodies of death, but they have been glorified fully and completely. And we are with God for all of eternity and there's no more sickness and there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow and there's no more cancer and there's no more death and there's no more tears. And we are in this glorified body. And as a kid, I used to love to think about how cool it would be to be Superman. Well, guess what? In heaven, we'll we'll be kind of like Superman. We will be doing things and understanding things and perceiving things. And our ability to function in this glorified body that God has glorified in his presence is going to absolutely blow our minds so much so now that we can only just grasp an inkling of its reality. There's a glory coming. Now, let me be clear about something because this can be confusing. That glory, that fullness of glory doesn't come until Christ returns. So let's say Christ comes back in 500 years. We'll all be dead before then. When you die, you don't get your resurrected body until Christ returns. So what about this in-between time? Well, here's what the Bible helps us understand it's even in these first five verses of chapter five a little bit where he's talking about being naked and but wanting to be longing to be clothed in in our resurrected bodies where mortality will be swallowed up by life and the language that he uses in those verses but there's a reality here where we're going to be separated from our bodies our bodies will still be in the grave but we will be with God and it will be awesome this is not a it's not a bad thing it's not like oh man that's gonna that's gonna be a bummer no it's gonna be incredible But there's a fullness of glory that will come where we will be reunited with our resurrected bodies and they will be glorified and we will experience the glory that we were created for in the very beginning in all of its fullness and we will be overwhelmed. And it will be amazing. Here's the struggle. You and I don't think about that very much. We struggle with getting so wrapped up in everything that's going on around us in the struggles of this life, in the sufferings of this life, in the afflictions of this life, in the temptations of this life, that we get so focused on this that we become like the soldiers in the story that I opened with. We don't fix our eyes on home. Home is just over that hill. We go, my goodness, what's going on around me? God, are you at work? Is there a glory to come? I can't focus. I can't take a step forward. I can't persevere because where is all this leading? And God says, look up. There's a glory that's coming. Fixing our eyes on the glory to come produces within us a present ability to persevere with glad hearts. Now listen, what the text does not say, I don't think Paul was saying, if you look in verse 17, he says this, for our light and momentary afflictions are are earning for us a a weight of glory. He's He's not saying that our sufferings are light and momentary. Because they're not. We walk through all kinds of hard stuff in this sin-ridden world. They're not light and momentary. He's not saying that. But listen, what he is saying is this. When we begin to align our hearts and our minds continually to the glory to come and what God is doing in redeeming all things to that place and time when all things are glorified again and made new for those of us who are in Jesus, then when we do that, then our afflictions and sufferings appear as though they're light and momentary. They're not, but they become that way. 
Because we go, you know what, this, this is hard. But there's a glory coming. I want to fix my hope on that. Listen to what Randy says in the book. I want to read this one quote because it's so good. He says this, Theologians have a name for what happens when a Christian dies. It's called glorification. It refers to a state in which a believer is full of glory. Glorification is so wonderful that just the anticipation of it puts all this world's brokenness into perspective. Those who are not Christians must face the pain of life without hope of the glory yet to be revealed. But listen to this. Don't miss these last two sentences. Christians who live without thought of the glory are practically speaking no better off. Sure, the glory will certainly still be theirs, but the hope advantage, the hope advantage that I'm talking about, that we're talking about, is forfeited. And the pain of life can seem unbearable. Where are you focused? Where's your hope? Underneath this one, I wanted to give you a little sub-point that just says this is a call to embrace a renewed perspective. Our perspective so oftentimes is focused on the temporal. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, because that's temporary, but what is unseen, because it's eternal. Let me, let me show you something real quick. And, and I realize I'm probably going to go a little bit over time because of using this illustration, but I just think it might be worth it. Some of you have seen this before. I've used this for years, and this is an old illustration that we used in campus ministry forever. But this rope here. Imagine this rope keeps going forever in that direction, infinity. Same thing in this direction. And this rope represents, get over there, and this rope represents eternity. Right here in the middle, I've put some tape. I'm not sure if you can see it, some orange tape right here in the middle. And this tape represents our life here on this earth, this, this wisp of a life that we have, so brief, here and gone before we know it. Even if we live to be 100, my grandmother just celebrated her 100th birthday this week. It's quick. She'll sit there and tell you, where did life go? We spend so much time on this orange tape. Everything is focused here. Even for the Christian, man, we get caught up. We don't live any different from the world around us. Investing in things that aren't going to last. They're not, they don't matter in the long run. Do you really need to play that next round of golf and not spend time with your kids again? Is that really necessary? Because one is temporal and one is eternal. Do you really need to take that business trip again that you really don't have to take, but you just want to go to that cool place and be away from your wife and kids yet one more time because one is temporal and one is eternal. Guess what? This world is not going anywhere. And if you really want to go to Paris, it's going to be here for all of eternity. It's going to be made new and even better. So just wait till eternity. (laughs) We spend so much time right here. Do we really need that bigger house when what we've got is sufficient? My time and my money and my talents and my, everything I'm doing could be so invested in this for all of eternity. Things that will last, things that when we stand before God, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on you or guilt. I'm just saying, how are we living? We spend so much time here. And the Bible says, Jesus himself said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
one of the things we really struggle with as Christians is we don't, we don't do that very well sometimes. We get so caught up in the here and the now. And we need a new perspective. We need to embrace a new perspective, to focus on the eternal and not the temporary. Lastly, and very quickly, I want to focus this on the hope of our heavenly home. How is this different from the glory to come? Well, there's a home that God is preparing for us, not with hands. He's building a home for us. And there's a longing that should be taking place in the heart of a, of a Christian. The subpoint under this one is the call to embrace a renewed longing. You'll notice in verses 1 through 5 that I read earlier, it talks about it two different times. I mentioned this. He's, he says, we groan. We groan for our heavenly home. What do you groan for? Do we groan for the right things? Do we long for the right things? I can remember about a year ago, year, maybe a year and a half, I'm not sure how long it's been. I saw a news report. It was on Facebook, and so it was, it was more graphic than what you would see on TV, and it was showing what ISIS was doing to little kids and women and just pure evil. I couldn't finish the video. I was so, I was so enraged. I was so angry. I was so mad, and, and, I, and I remember just going before the Lord, and I remember saying, God, If you're not going to save these people, would you get rid of them? Would you take them out? God, if they're not for you, they're against you. Would you do something? This is not right. I was so mad. And I'm not saying I was in the right heart either. Because moments later, I think the Spirit began to work on me, and I began to pray more in the direction of, but God, if there is a way to save these people, would you do it? Would you use your church to do so? Let me tell you what came out of that moment. What came out of that moment was a renewed longing in my heart for Jesus to come and make all things new. For heaven to come to earth, for us to be home. And just, God, would you come? Would you come? This is so messed up. And we just keep messing it up more and more and more. And God, we're, we're trying as your church, but would you just come? Would you come? I long for you to come. Groaning at the deepest level of the heart for God to come and make all sad things untrue. And he's going to do that. He's going to do it. It's called heaven. It's called glory. And it's coming. Listen, there should be a growing, in the life of a mature Christian, one who is maturing, there should be a growing sense of homesickness within us. This growing longing to be home. Not in a suicidal, not, 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 not in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy, God, I just want to be with you and I want to see you redeem all of your creation like you say you're going to do and I believe that you will. But lastly, let me reorient us to really what heaven is all about, what glory is all about, because it's real easy to end the sermon right here and I'm already a little bit over time, but stick with me. It's real easy to end the sermon and think that heaven and glory is all about us. Yes, it's true that when we get to heaven, if you're in Christ, there will be on the return of Christ this glory that will happen with our resurrected bodies and we will be overwhelmed and amazed at who we are and what we get to do in heaven in our glorified selves. And it will be spectacular in every sense of the word. And that is so good and we need to rejoice in that and that is good news. But it's not the central part of what heaven is all about. Listen to this quote from John Piper. From his book, God is the Gospel, he says it this way. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. 
If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? Stop, don't read the rest. If the question mark were there, how would you answer? I know if I'm honest in many times and many days of my life, I'd say, yeah, I'd be satisfied with that. That'd be great. But if we read the rest, but if Christ were not there, would you be satisfied? Do you long for heaven because of Jesus or because of what it's going to do to you? And it's okay to hope for what's going to happen to us in heaven, but really don't miss this. The purpose of your existence, the purpose of my existence, both in this life and in the life to come, is all about being in the presence of our all-satisfying Savior. That's what it's about. And sometimes we lessen heaven to be about us when it's all about him. It's about Jesus. It's about his glory and us radiating and filling and understanding his glory for all of eternity. It's going to be awesome. Do you know him? Is your hope in him? Because he is the hope the gospel promises. He's the hope. We're about to sing a song again. We're going to sing the same song that we sung earlier, Death is Arrested. You know it now. So I expect you to sing loud. I'm going to ask you to do something when we sing this song. I know you're still learning it, but I encourage you to close your eyes as you sing it and think about what we're singing. When this choir is up here singing with Michelle and Zach, man, it sounds amazing. But let me tell you something, that is just an inkling, a drop in the ocean of what heaven is going to be like when we are singing with the multitudes in the glory of Christ. I want you to close your eyes as you're singing this song. And I want you to imagine you're there. I want you to imagine you're in glory. And people as far as you can see, both deep and wide and spread this way and that, are singing to the glory of Christ. And you are joining in with them in singing this song. If you want to raise a hand, it's okay. I want to see, I want you to enter into this thought of glory. But not just in this moment. Let it propel you into letting this thought of glory be the, one of the motivating factors to, to your everyday life, to think on it, to dwell on it, to let this hope be what drives you. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you so much, God, that you allow us in your grace not only to open your word, but to enter into it and let it shape us and mold us, make us more into the image of Jesus. Father, we are a people who are quick to set our hope on many, many things. And God, would you remind us that all of our hopes are ultimately misplaced, if not ultimately placed in you. God, let that that truth sink deep into our hearts, Father. All of our hopes are ultimately misplaced, if not placed in you. Lord, we believe that. Would you do your work in us? Thank you that you gave us your Holy Spirit who seals us for that day, who guarantees our eternal security. Thank you. Be worshiped now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.